This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Futurati podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Irene Ng. Irene is a professor of marketing and service systems and the director of the International Institute for Product and Service Innovation at WMG, University of Warwick. An industrial economist through her doctoral training, Irene's research lies in the transdisciplinary understanding of value and the design of markets and economic business models. If you enjoy this interview, please don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com. Dr. Ng, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. Let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what's brought you to working on the problems that you're working on now. Um, Background, I was an early entrepreneur in the 1990s. Um, Started at the age of 26, trying to turn a company around. Um, Had no cash flows. There were no equity markets then to raise money on. Uh, Decided to diversify a travel company that was losing money into cruise ships because I thought it was a good idea at that time. Um, and that brought a lot of cash flows in, turned it around, and then decided to go in full-time, realized that you can't really run cruise ships uh, full-time because of the peaks and troughs, so you needed to run a casino. So I ran a casino ship uh, (laughs) and built it to about 250 million turnover um, per month, um, and then sold it in 1996, decided that this is going to be at the ripe age of 33, the time to write all that I've learned, checked myself into university, promptly forgot about it within three months and got enamored by market design, economics, industrial design. I went and did my PhD in market design and marketing science um, and then moved to the UK from um, Malaysia and Singapore and been in, uh, in academia for 15 years. My family still thinks it's a hiatus. They're thinking, when are you going to get a proper job? <laughs> um, and so I did um, in 2016, spin up my own company. I'm now CEO of DataSwift. Oh, very good. That's that's a very tightly packaged introduction. It sounds like you, something yeah. you've gone over a couple of times. Um, just, just to satisfy my personal curiosity, could, could you define market design and industrial design? Like how that relates to economics? So um, market design is basically, um, I'm, I'm sure some of the, the best uh, economists in the world are better equipped to, des- uh, to describe it. But from my point of, work, point of view, market design is really trying to design transactions, um, where the transactions are supposed to be, um, and where to match the people who want something with people who want to sell something. Um, and there are, if you read Al Roth's book and, and the work from Al Roth, um, usually three major principles in market design. You need to create thickness, you have to reduce congestion, you have to make sure the transactions are safe. And so a lot of what I've been trying to do is to redesign the personal data economy to ensure that we transact at the right places, which currently I don't think we are. Um, We are to to some extent, um, and that's kind of the discipline of um, using markets to be create more efficient systems. Now, markets, of course, will need their own regulation. And so you actually have to design policy and regulatory aspects of it to make sure markets are well-functioning. But you also um, can, therefore, because you have market players involved, save the public sector a hell of a lot of money, um, especially if you're me. And the question I get most asked by governments and uh, companies is when they are so tired of throwing public money at something and say, oh, can the market solve this? Let's go talk to Irene. And so that's uh, where I usually come in and say, okay, what is it? And what is not? What What is it that you spend so much money on that you really need a market for? So as you're, um, as we're working our way through COVID, as an economist, you're looking at kind of the changing motivations and 
changing goals and the things that the attitudes are shifting and changing. Can you talk a little bit about um, kind of what you're noticing from your perspective on that area? So one of the really interesting aspects of market design in my space to do with human beings is where we transact. In the last 10 to uh, probably 20 years, yeah, 20 years, oh my God, we're getting old, um, like 20 <laughs> years, um, where we have transacted has changed drastically. We used to buy CDs, you know, in shops. Right. Now we just get music off Spotify. Um, so anything that could be digitized has, the market has moved. The market transaction point of where you actually transact has moved. There's moved from a physical location somewhere down the road or in the mall somewhere into what I love to say, one foot from your body, usually your phone. Right, right. <laughs> and in that real estate of a market, one foot from your body, amazing number of companies are trying to get a share of that real estate. Now, some companies try to change the space of the real estate by saying, oh, can't be just a phone. One foot from your body can also be your watch. And we know who wants to play that. Right. And oh no, I'm sure it can be a glasses. We know who has tried that. And so <laughs> what you see is just a, a lot of land grab for that one foot of your body right. to transact at markets that could potentially be digitalized. So almost everything that can be digitalized is now one foot from your body. Your magazines, your information, your music. Um, you can't do a cup of tea yet. <laughs> it's only because it can't be digitalized. But if it can be, I guarantee you would have moved one foot from your body because that's where the most efficient market tends to transact. You could have an NFT of a cup of tea, I think. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> NFT, yeah. Right. So, or a yeah. pizza. Right, yeah. or, or a pizza. So, so Thomas <laughs> has this idea for putting advertisements literally on your body, on, on your shirt, you know, and, and that you, you the, the monetization would be the number of eyeballs that you can attract to yourself. And I, I, I think this is an awful idea because I think it will incentivize people to crash birthday parties and funerals and, and, and streak at the Super Bowl and things like that. But yeah. I thought you're an economist. You think about transactions and, and th markets one foot from your body. You want to weigh in on this? Yeah, I think there is a difference between a market and what we call, or a friend of mine likes to call it, and I think it's quite commonly called a repugnant market. And so there are markets that are repugnant. Repugnant market? Repugnant market. Yeah, yeah. Repugnant markets are like a, a kidney. Like you could start a marketplace to sell and buy kidneys. Right. But uh, yeah. really, it is a pretty repugnant market. And I'll, this is exactly the job of people like myself and wonderful economists like Al Roth. He redesigned the kidney market to allow matching systems to happen. And you can actually now shorten the amount of time you can get kidneys without creating a repugnant market. So good market design is having the right transactions at the right place, but doesn't recreate repugnance. So, so I, can we get a little clearer on the location of the transactions and why that's so important? Because it sounds to me like that's an incentives problem. Like what you don't want, what you do want are, are people who need kidneys to get them in less amount of time. What you don't want are people knocking, you know, others unconscious and stealing their kidneys. It's, it seems more like an incentives problem. So why is that the wrong way to look at it? Uh, you can have all sorts of incentives. Um, and I think um, when we think about an incentive problem, you've also got to ask yourself incentive for what? Most of the incentive design that we see is around monetary incentives. And that's what creates a repugnant market. A very specific type of incentive, which are monetary, can create repugnant markets because it's like selling your body, selling your kidney. However, if you create other kinds of incentives, like I would like my partner to get a kidney and therefore I don't mind if he goes and we find a way to match and find other partners and sooner or later we have a kidney chain and now we can get kidneys a short amount of time, you've taken money out of it, right? And so you've taken money out of it, but you've not taken incentives out of it. And now you create a market. So when I say transactions, I don't just mean monetary transactions. In fact, monetary transactions usually start off something like create repugnance. You have to start creating incentive of which there is an exchange that happens. And that could happen one foot from your body. It could be monetary, but it could be something else. Um, and that's kind of one of the principal challenges of market design. What is that which is being traded here? So as an economist, you're looking at uh, kind of the priority uh, systems out there right now. And, and every, all of our priorities seems to have changed 
during the last couple of years as we've gone through COVID, that uh, things that we didn't think were important two years ago, suddenly they're very important today, and things that we thought were just super important just suddenly dropped off the face, and, and we don't even consider them. Uh, some people want to live in houses. Some people want to live in vans that are traveling around. And, and so we're, we're seeing all of these changing attitudes. Um, can, can you speak a little bit to that as from what your perspective? Yeah, I think um, back to the one foot from your body transactions, what we've seen with COVID is the fact that um, the shifting places of which these exchanges happen um, have changed quite a lit, quite a bit in the way the hybrid digital and physical tends to interact. Uh, uh, a simple example is, uh, you know, condominiums or big apartment blocks that are, you know, the super luxury, had all these amazing sauna and pools and everything. Come COVID, you couldn't use them. And all of a sudden you're stuck in a little place yeah beautiful penthouse but not many places that you can actually go out to and all of a sudden a house that had an acre land became much more precious than a penthouse over the looking the river thames just right. because the way it find you right it started to develop I, I believe what it starts to make uh, human behavior start to appreciate the multi-dimensional aspect of our lives that's been pretty much taken for granted you see, a human person doesn't understand or doesn't realize, and it doesn't have to realize, the number of vertical sectors we traverse. So, for example, if you went in and brushed your teeth every morning, you pass six sectors of the economy. The FMCG, water, electricity. Uh, and so you literally, in one context, you touch, well, we counted about six sectors. Now, but this is a micro one person, six sectors multiplied by billions, that is one contextual archetype, we call it. But the world doesn't look at contextual archetype, they look at sectors. So the, the bit that touched you was that toothbrush. And so there's a toothbrush and there's an FMCG, uh, you know, there's a business selling toothbrush. So when you start from the person out towards the industry and sectors, you realize you have quite a different perspective. And while we've always been socially connected before, what COVID has done was it has reshaped and restructured the way we interact with each other. Now imagine if I touch six sectors in 15 minutes of brushing teeth, now I fundamentally change my life because of COVID. Right. <laughs> in the way I live it in a 24-hour day, imagine the structures it breaks yeah. around the verticals that I'm engaging with. And that's the kind of disruptions that you're seeing. That's remarkable. Um, could you tell me a little bit more about the process of designing a market? It's just not clear to me. I, I tend to think of them as spontaneous orders that sort of emerge when human beings engage in, yeah. in certain kinds of activity, but it's not clear to me what it would mean to design a market. Like, do you, do you go to the Costco yeah. and get like a template market and set it up that way? I <laughs> <laughs> no, um, um, if you look, there's a wonderful paper from Carlis Baldwin, um, and she wrote, Where Do Transactions Come From? And she had a really nice um, way of treating it. She talks about thickness, uh, thick, thick crossing points and thin crossing points. I, I speak a lot about that in my book uh, on the creating markets in a digital economy. So I'll give you an example. I might have given the example. So you, if you're a mom and dad and you just had a new baby, what is going to happen? All your processes are going to, you, you can't map the processes. What no. I do depends on what he does and oh, where is the baby right now? And forget it. You're never going to make an efficient system out of managing a baby in the first month of the baby coming in. <laughs> yeah. So that's what we call a thick crossing. There are lots of thick crossing points. You can't map it. You can't sequentialize it. You can't linearize it. You can't do anything. But every system reaches a point of crisis. So all of a sudden, mom and dad, baby, great first month. Oh, mom has to go back to work. Oh, dad has to go back to work. Well, we're going to do something. What are we going to do? We've got this baby. You've got to introduce new resource. Now, how are you going to introduce this new resource into this mom, dad, baby thing? Immediately, you know, you've got to do something different. Mm -hmm. You've got to modularize this system of mom dad thing you've got to start planning you're going to say okay you know what i'll do this you do that and at seven o'clock in the morning we'll pass it to a nanny yeah and then they'll pass it back so what used to be a lot of thick crossing points 
you've created a thin crossing point and you brought a new resource in called Nanny. I'm not sure I'm clear on the thick, thin distinctions. The thick, thick crossing point is when it's all interactive, you can't put a transaction in there at all. You can't actually map out the process to say, I can insert a, a particular resource. If, if you were all mom, dad, baby, and you didn't modularize it and make it into components in or processes in any way, there's no way your nanny is going to come in and help you. Okay. There's no way. So mom, dad has to change. Mom, dad has to plan and make a process and say, I'll change, you do, and all that. And then because of by modularizing it into components, you can create a point of which a new resource can enter. Okay. That is the creation of a thin crossing point. Would that be at all related to the idea of legibility? So, so if there's thick transactions, it's just sort of, you know, everything's flying hard and fast. You're just trading off in real time. You're both kind of handling everything. And an outsider would look at it and just see total howling chaos. But it's when you Correct. modularize it and break it up and say, no, this is my part. That's your part. Then, I mean, you wouldn't do this. You but create- the- theoretically, you could have a manager come in and say, okay, here's what everybody does. And here's how you're going to optimize it. Is, is that sort of a good way of looking at it? Exactly. That's exactly right. Modularization is the first step towards creating a point where a transaction can happen and new resource can enter for you to do better. And if you want it to be personal, it's very simple. Ask yourself the first moment when you moved from a notebook to a calendar online. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I did, I did have to think about the different the different pieces of it all and what it all meant, right? Well, that's the thing, right? You had to think differently. You had to do differently. But somehow you th- thought it was going to pay off. Probably didn't the first three months of using this online. You went back to the notebook very often. But you, you had to do something different. And it's the same. So the first step is to say, look, this system is in crisis. Obviously, new resource has to be introduced. You just can't introduce it. Where are you going to introduce it? Is it 7 o'clock in the morning? For the nanny to come in, or should it be 12 noon? Should it be somewhere midnight? Where does the new, should it be a nanny bot? You know, right. what, what is it? You know, I mean, what what is the new resource that's going to alleviate the crisis and the situation? Modularization is one, thick and then thin. It's the reason why you don't make pots in a kitchen. You yeah. make it somewhere else, someone sell it to you, and you use a pot in the kitchen. You, otherwise, your kitchen will be making pots while the finish making that pot then you will use it to cook with it. Hey, it did happen in the case, yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Markets evolve from modularization of thick things that we do and realizes that we hit a, a kind of crisis point, modularize, make a thin crossing point, bring something in. My question when we design markets to say, first, <laughs> should there be a resource introduced to make more efficient? And where? And how? And there are some intriguing, and that's a matching problem, right? Because if you are wanting nanny to come into that, so there must be nanny who wants to do something at that moment where you're supposed to be introducing it and you must have a couple with a baby that has this problem. So you now have matching issues. So a lot of market design is matching, but it's also within the system about reaching a point where new resource can be introduced. Okay, so I wonder what the size of the market is which you could effectively plan. I mean, for various economic reasons, we know that it's, it's nearly impossible to centrally plan an economy. The signals don't work right. Prices get warped. So, but, but you are designing a market. So how is that different from just centrally planning? I mean, it seems like you're putting brackets in place. You're not actually telling people to produce this or that. So I'm just wondering if, uh, do you ever bump up against those kinds of considerations? And if so, like, how do you deal with them? You did. I mean, so this is when we, uh, when I decided in, uh, I think 2011, I was going to say that story. I was in the heart of Cambridge um, in 2011. I looked around in the heart of town and I said, oh, we're looking at the world of data and digital. Now, who would be the company that would know I'm right now in the middle of Cambridge would love lunch and would like to recommend to me the Thai food that I really want to eat right now. At that moment, I kind of realized that that is absolutely impossible for all the tech that we have, because you would have been, you would have to know almost everything about me. That means I would have let you know everything about me, including my taste and where I am right now. What kind of company at the size of a market that will have that much power and that much data to say this to every single human living being on this world? 
And immediately you know the answer to that. It's not possible. It's just not possible. So turn that around and therefore I said, oh, wait a minute. We're looking at market failure. Darn it. Is that, does that mean that I will never get a recommendation for, for lunch? Right. So that's why you see a gap and you see no state and no company can provide that. So you then say, how would you structure that it could happen? So that's the other way of looking at it and say, there is a market that will fail. How would you make it not fail? Ah, so do you have like a general solution to the problem of market failure? Because it's fairly pervasive and a, and a deep issue. Oh, no, 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 no. No, I would never have a general failure to market, uh, just solution to market failure. I have a solution to a market failure problem okay. of holding way too much data. And my solution is I have to own it. So the reason for that is the same. It's the same general failure for, for money. If I ask you the question, let's say in this world we don't have banks, which company will you trust for to hold all your money and you do not hold any of it? So that whenever you went shopping, you just told this company, please pay him. Yeah. Which company? That is a market failure. You cannot. That's why we have bank accounts. It is not possible for one single company to hold all your money, even if instructed to do so to pay someone else. You have to legally own your money and you have to build a market system to say it is safe to give money to him. But you must own it because the property rights of, you know, in this case, money must rest with you for all the markets around money, your money, to function well. Okay, so that seems like a natural place to transition over into some of the work you do with DataSwift and around, I, I think of yeah. it as privacy, but you said maybe that's not the right way to think about it. So I, I know you've got a lot of thinking about data monetization and who controls it and what the property rights are around that. This is hugely important and going to be more important in the future. So let's just use that as a, as a chance to get into this. Yeah, that was the, the, the thing I came out of in 2011. And I said, okay, there's no company that will hold enough and everything. Um, we need to decentralize data ownership, not decentralize alone, just the data ownership of, you know, you, you, your, your money ownership isn't decentralized. It sits with the bank, right. but you have legal right over it. Right. And that's more important. So we started to look at how we could have legal data ownership to ourselves and lo and behold, you can't. It is a weird place, the internet. Um, Mark Post, the historian, once said, the internet is not a hammer. You, you don't use the internet as a hammer. It's not a tool. Because when you use a hammer, it doesn't try to change you to become a hammer. Right. The internet is not a hammer. The internet changes you. So actually, Mark Post said, the internet is more like Germany. So if you go to Germany, it'll try to make a German out of you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the internet is like Germany. It'll try to make you a netizen of some sort. But the weird thing about the internet is it's all private good. The second you enter the internet, if you think of it as a country, it's all private good. That is like walking out of your house, stepping onto the pavement and having to pay someone for every piece of land that surrounds your house. In fact, it's actually worse. You don't have a house <laughs> in the internet. You do not have a place that you can be, not just private, you can't, own any property on the internet. And that's why they, they're all saying to say that you're a product. And therefore the right to contract on data or property rights of your, your owning. So Spotify owns a database, right? Streams out music, can license it. Tell me, what can you do to license your own data? First, you don't own any of it. So you can't license it. <laughs> it's owned by Facebook and everybody else. So second, you don't actually have it a space, a technology of which you can license. So in 2013, 2012, when we built, when we created the first hat microserver a project and raised 1.2 million, which then became 10 million and now has blown up to be more than 33 million in research funding to keep building on, we say we have to solve a fundamental problem, property rights, because economics and market design, so this goes even beyond market design. Market design can design as long as you actually have property rights over your kidneys or whatever it is. Right. But in the 
of the internet, you have nothing. So we have had to build up a property rights framework so that you can own something. Never mind if you don't own it yet, but you had a vessel of which you own something. And hence, hence the personal data server was born. Partly because the other entities that own something, your phone belonging to Apple, um, your hands and your mouse is basically not good netizens. It doesn't have enough computation power. It doesn't, it's not a great, you become like a bit of a second class citizen. So in order to be a first class citizen, you have to have a data, you have to have a server. So we created that and we had to make it cheap enough that it could be spun off. It could be cheap enough to literally give it away. So that anybody who wanted to rent space in your server that you legally own and could reshare your data, we could create a market out of it. It's very cohesion in terms in economics to say that it really doesn't matter who owns what, just as long as it's clear who owns what, then you can basically have a bargaining solution, which is where the transaction can happen. And internalize the externalities, right? Yeah. So based on your <clears throat> understanding of how this will evolve, I mean, this idea of privacy and uh, ownership, all of that is evolving um, along with kind of the companies that are some of the main players, but there's, there's, there's a huge amount of pushback right now. Um, how do you think this resolves itself over the next 10 years, 20 years? And so what does privacy look like in a decade or two decades from now? So with a personal data server, you are completely private, right? So that's basically solved. The question is how do you get the markets to function so that you actually get some property in there? to be able to share your Facebook, whatever it is. And as it turns out, about you know, quite a number of 80 countries or so have kind of solved it for us. They've imposed data regulation of such degree that it almost is impossible for data to move. Today, okay. if you wanted to have an app in the US work in Malaysia, an app in Singapore work in Europe, you'd probably need to really understand the whole tariff system. It's like those days of export, it, data has become that. 10 years ago, it wasn't. Your data could freely fly everywhere. Nobody cared. Today, more than 80 countries have put data regulation in, everything from sovereignty to, um, to the way it's stored, the way it's at rest, the way it's used. So if you're a small little app, or even if you're a large organization, this becomes a problem because while you can use it with your organization, data is not portable. So it's a bit like saying, Oh, good. I've got all the money. They're all stored in these companies. Now, when it comes to asking you to pay someone else with my money, you go, ah, that's a little bit hard. Guess what the solution of that is? You return it to my data server, portability instantly, right? It's like having a bank account. I have money in my bank account. I can take the bank. I can take the money wherever the source is from to give it to wherever the destination. The question now is therefore the design of incentives. Why would a large company give the data back to me? And that's why we create the data pass network. So if you go to datapass.network or you go to datapassport.com, we create a data passport system. We created a data passporting system where data would just move much quicker if you gave it back to me. Whether it was your FICO score, it would be moving quicker. Now, why would they want to click, make it quicker? Because wherever I go in a transaction, if I took my degree certificate from uh, the US and went to a recruiter in Europe, if I could transact on that immediately, and if it was paid back to the source, you are then able to create a market of which the source now starts to gain from this new delivery channel who happens to go through me. That's how we designed that market. So it it's, sounds like, you know, originally the internet was a lot more open data could kind of go wherever. And then with the passage of various regulatory measures, it was almost like digital walls went up and there are now nations in cyberspace, which makes the free flow of data a lot more difficult. You have a digital passport system that makes that easier. How is that better than what we had 10 years ago when the internet was just more open? So I think people start to realize now because there's so much of our personal data that's been collected that you start to paint a very, very good image of the person. Now, that could be good and bad. Ten years ago, I know everything about you. You know, what do they say on the internet? They don't know if you're a dog, yeah, right? right? Today, yeah. they know that I'm a 58-year-old woman. Yeah. You know, and probably know what I'm wearing. And what kind of Thai food so you like. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So 
it is a different internet now. It is an internet that has a lot of individual data and you have to have a different model. Now, the model is quite simple from an economics point of view. It just means that the data as an asset, as a property, now starts to stratify itself into two classes, normal data and personal data. So you could almost have to think of the internet effort, two kinds of highways, where one kind of highway you better treat with care, uh, more consideration and care, because you're talking about real people, um, the harm that you can do, because you can piece together pretty much what a person is from all that data. So when you have that highway, you should be um, as open as we have in society today. But in society today, you can say, well, we get privacy, but actually it's a lot more than that. It's just, why do you need privacy uh, on the internet? You know, we should be just all open. Well, I think privacy is a fundamental, right? And it's not about having anything to hide. I mean, when I go to pee, there's nothing to hide. I still don't want anyone looking. Right, right. So mm-hmm. it's about a fundamental right. And all the data that makes up people uh, pieces of us is valuable. We shouldn't chuck it. We shouldn't throw it away. We shouldn't be deleting it. We should actually use it for the good of society, but you've got to safely use it. So in the same way money has to be safely used when you pay someone in CVS, you actually have to know that it's a safe transaction. So principles of market design, the transaction have to be safe. Mm -hmm. Number two, it must be lacking, it must not be congested. Number three, there must be sufficient thickness. So all of that is that design of the how the data in the data server should go out the way money goes out. So should we should we be allowed to have more than one identity online? We should be allowed plenty. And we, we use the words persona now. If you hold your own real identity, you, the businesses around the world just really don't want it. I mean, seriously, you want to buy alcohol? The guy just wants to know you're above 21 right. or in the UK above, right? Yeah. And if you want to eat in restaurants, they just want to know what your allergies are. The problem is our, in, our technology systems are so poor in treating this highway for personal data that we only allow to transact very lumpy type of data. It's like, just to tell you I'm allergic to nuts, I've got to give you my whole digital footprint why and a lot of that is incentivized by the advertising network which we understand is needed because we like to have as when you know to to know what is serendipitously i like socks and i like red dresses and things like that but we are evolving as a society of digital and the way to evolve is not shut everything down or open everything up but do it in a way that is responsible, understand that it's a two-tier class system when it comes to data, know how to manage it, strip off identity from identifiers when you don't need it, which is what we do with data passes. I can just tell you I'm allergic to nuts. Do I have to know, give you my real name, right? Strip off identifiers when I don't need it, include the uh, identity when I need it because I'm actually applying for a mortgage here. And that's what society has to just be better at. And then you will see that, that the value of the data would just... Uh, come in and there is a lot of pushback from big tech but actually i'm actually quite sympathetic because big tech grew up in an age where these the technology that we created doesn't exist where everything was a private good so if you want to give more and more services this is the only way to do it but as technology improves and there are different ways of doing it there can be different systems of which to evolve then you could you could change with it so so it sounds like you're trying to create a bank account for data that gives you a lot more control over what people see and allows you to tier your data based on its use case and what you feel comfortable sharing. Is, is that a, a good way to think about it? Yeah, but we don't do it, right? The market does it, right? The applications that come in and say, I want a data pass for nut allergy. I want a data pass for your, MI, uh, your, your sort of degree certificate. I the see. market pulls out the demand for this different kinds of data. But if you had a place to store it, the demand for this can now be correctly placed or, or you want everything no but he doesn't need everything so i go can go to him so you can make a, a, a market function better when property rights sits with me but as a human being i don't want to manage that much data i don't you don't wake up in the middle of the night thinking your money is safe you don't have to wake up in the middle of the night thinking whether your data is safe you shouldn't have to do that it should automatically be safe 
But in transacting to keep that transaction safe, the market will then separate between those who just want it because the value is high enough. And the reason why we think that the market is high, uh, value is high enough is just look at advertising. The amount of waste and ad fraud that is going in just to know that I'm targeting you, mother of uh, two, is so much money that you could literally think that if, if I told you this person is a mother of two, there's a lot of ad money to make that more efficient. So if you think about then matching the source of the data, who knows I'm a mother of two? Okay, my insurance company. And who wants to know I'm a mother of two? Oh, that little small online shop that's selling kids clothes. If we had a better matching system between the source and the destination, which can happen if we are the central, not an app or a business, the market then becomes a little bit more efficient. And that's the, the thing we're trying to change. See, that's why when, before we started recording, you said it's not about privacy, it's about transactions. Is that right? It's about coordination. Okay. It is coordination. So if you wanted to run, so one of the things that Facebook and Twitter has taught us is that mass coordination is possible because bad news really travel at a Twitter speed of light. We have seen that with all the little internet memes. Now imagine that global scale of coordination, which actually happened with COVID, can be directed to everything from climate change to use of plastics in terms of how we have a data pass for plastic use, whatever. You can run mass global coordination when we start having data accounts to allow many different applications to coordinate amongst themselves much, much more efficiently even together with big tech because they are the source of a lot of data today. So, so this brings up some um, real interesting topics about, I mean, how we, how we decide what's, uh, what should be protected and what isn't. Um, and I mean, we've, we've seen cases in social media where they start blocking certain topics because this is taboo topic. Um, and I think it's, Twitter has just decided that there are, or YouTube has just decided they're not allowing any videos that um, uh, will actually are climate change deniers, right. and and so the um, that that becomes a really slippery slope when there's because we all have our own versions of the truth. There we have scientific truths, we have religious truths, we have. Uh, political truths. Uh, we have all kinds of ways of looking at things. Plus, what counts as a denier? What, what does that mean exactly? Yeah, yeah, exactly. What is a denier? And and so when you get into this, the topics of alternative health, as an example, um, everything that uh, a doctor says doesn't work, there's somebody out there with a strong testimonial saying that it does work for them. And so then how do we draw the line and decide what's true and what isn't, and then what should be acceptable and what isn't. So it goes to the overall policies that uh, we're going to be using to kind of rein in this idea of privacy. Um, maybe, um, but the world has seen this before. Okay. Um, the world has seen this before um, in the way we talk about food. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So we have junk food. Right. Right. We, we do. I mean, come on. We have got tons of junk food. <laughs> you eat too much and it will kill you. Yeah. yeah. It really will. We're right? Americans. We know a lot about this. Yes. Yeah. And so what do we say about junk food? We talk about diet. We have honest conversations about what diet should be. We don't say you must eat all this great food or bad food. We, we, we have honest, good conversations about diet. Information is ingested in the same way as food. It is about time the world start understanding physicality affects mental health. Mental health affects physicality. In the same way as food, whatever we take in from a physical point of view and whatever we take in from an informational point of view is, has huge parallels. 
So what you have to think about is that is your media diet. So I have a um, um, my favorite story was it's uh, uh, I have a, a friend, a, a relative who one day started to say certain things I thought was kind of weird. Where, where is getting all this information from? And then I I said, could I uh, do you mind if I just check your iPad? You know, kind of screen time, have a look at your media diet if you don't mind. And and he went like, sure. And you go in there and you realize he spends two hours on kind of junk. <laughs> like yeah. qualified junk, information diet junk. I, I will not name the papers, you know. Right. Um, and you go, do you mind if I tweet that? And I do you mind if I tweet your Facebook feed? <laughs> uh, you know, to make sure that it's not all junk in that Facebook feed of yours. Because that's the power of Facebook feed. Is if, if you if you are on it six hours a day, that's a massive part of your diet, mm-hmm. right? So we tweet, 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 and after a while, you know. It kind of became a bit more well adjusted. So that's kind of how you can never stop junk food. You will never stop junk information. The internet is free for a reason. You've got a lot of junk out there. What you have to understand is that media diet is like any other diet. You just really have to know how to manage it. And this is a world where we have digital and physical, we need to manage both. And yeah. the market is should be there to help us manage all these diets properly. Yeah, since we all know that junk food is bad for us, should we actually ban all ads on junk food online? <laughs> I mean, that's that probably an extreme point, but um, at, at, where do you draw the line over... Uh, we, ha- we have a lot of bad information, a lot of bad ideas, a lot of bad products out there. Uh, should we allow them to exist, or do we sanitize everything and uh, that's where we run into a lot of problems, I think. I think you do have to create some definitive standards as we do with food. You know, you have got to have proper labeling, which is, I think, almost every, every NFT thinks they can be the one <laughs> to say, yeah. I will label videos to be these other authentic ones. Look, the market is trying to solve that with all everything from blockchain NFTs to uh, badging and standards and everything. Currently, however, our media diet, but very much ruled by Facebook and YouTube, um, unless they agree, a lot of our diet is ruled by some of the big tech platforms. And I, But I believe they are also finding this a massive conundrum, coming to a, an understanding of proper labeling and proper understanding of how those labels are being interpreted are, are really important. I don't think it's rocket science. We managed to pretty much do reasonably good food labeling. Okay. Some would disagree with us uh, with GM foods and things like that, but you know, but we do, we do have labeling. Yeah. Yeah. But, but if you, if you go into the topic of information labeling, uh, what's considered bad information, um, is there, is there such a thing as inherently bad knowledge or is all knowledge value neutral? Um, If you, Start going to the world, the market for information and the market for uh, knowledge, you will start to realize that everything is about the scale, right? We don't mind junk food a bit of time. In fact, it's actually quite fun and it's actually probably good for you um, mentally because you get to enjoy it, you know? Information is kind of similar in the sense that if you want to put some labels around it, one of the big things, and I know we're not we're supposed to stay clear of politics and religion. <laughs> One of the big things you want to have a problem with is information on politics and religion, yeah, right? right? So I think what you really need to understand is the problem isn't about that. The problem is the scale of that. And so there are two ways to tackle it. Are you tackling the scale of that or are you t- tackling that? Right. Because the internet can run at very high speeds. And what you know, it used to be just 500 people. Now it's just 5 million people. And suddenly it's 50 million people. So it's about, and scale, that can be solved. Because at scale, if they take away a lot of that power in terms of distributing out how we get information, you can reduce the impact of that. And then the markets can then come in to try to mediate that a little bit better. I'm not saying markets will solve everything. You still need that regulation. You still need those standards. But we need to understand whether we are solving for the scale of it or whether we're actually trying to put some objective standards, which I believe you can never do that with knowledge. 
Yeah, I don't know what that would look like. It seems like the first level attempts are trying to solve the content problem, not the scale problem. They're just flagging things as misinformation, which I think in your framework would be problematic. It is problematic because of the way human beings learn. Human beings do not learn by compliance alone. There are two major ways we learn. We learn by compliance and we learn by contestation. If you sit in lecture in class, you can either say, oh, I'm absorbing what he is teaching me. And so, you know, I deposit that into my head. Or if you're a bit like me listening to the lecture, I go like, that's bullshit. No, I don't believe it. No, that's terrible. I hate that. I don't know. He's wrong. Now, it doesn't mean I didn't learn. I absolutely learned. I learned to disagree. Information, therefore, has that power to make you agree or disagree because it helps a person learn. To dis- take that away that is wrong is to take away that choice. And I believe fundamentally, we just have to be more adult about it and say there's compliant learning, there's nonsense out there, but we have to realize that people do know it's nonsense and they do contest against nonsense. And then you're back to what's the scale of it. Okay. I have a, I have a grandson who's seven years old and he showed me a video of um, uh, this gentleman eating alien candy. And it was the, the a fascinating, funny video that actually went viral. <clears throat> and uh, he showed it to me, and he was very concerned. He says, you just can't fake things like that. And uh, at, at the mind of a seven-year-old is always a curiosity to me. So, um, so then I, I managed to show him the video of that video being made and how they were able to fake it. And, uh, and so I, I always think about young people today having great difficulty telling, uh, being able to discern what's, what's real and what isn't. And, um, and, and there, is, there are so many things out there that give them such a distorted view of, of reality that I think that becomes kind of this encroaching problem on a future generation. Um, yeah, do you have any thoughts as to how we'd go about uh, making it so young people can better uh, make these decisions on their own? I think some of us grew up in a whole generation of compliant learning. where We went to school, got lots of information deposited into our heads because there was just a lot of information we had to assimilate in order to function as normal adults in society. So back in the day, that's really what school was. We had to learn it by compliance. We have to absorb a lot of information. When the internet came along, the need to deposit and hold information is no longer relevant. That phone you have is your Batman utility belt. You no longer need to know the information. It's there with you. We therefore have to change, have to think about how we learn. I think the next generation is going to be learn a lot through contestation learning. And that means it's a very different way of learning where they literally learn by contesting all the time, by criticizing and contesting. You already see it with some of the generation where kids are literally telling one another and making up fake things almost uh, to disagree with one another. And I think it's, it is a form of learning that we are not as an older generation accustomed to, and we need to get accustomed to that. But it is not necessarily bad because contestation learning and critical learning does breed a lot of creativity. And, you know, research has shown that contestation and critical thinking really helps with a lot of problem solving. God knows we need our our kids to be able to solve some of the problems that we've created in the past. Um, So I think we do have to think about the way we learn and we have to stop. I'm not saying that we should stop worrying. I think we still have to worry, but we have to acknowledge that with that much information, the way we learn, the way kids learn has to be by contesting. There is no other way because there's a lot of information. And by contesting and learning, they become wiser for it. They know what to, 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 to avoid and they have choice and they have freedom. It sounds almost like a return to the old Socratic way of, of handling this sort of thing. You ask questions, you disagree. There's sort of a dialogue, of, a kind of dialectical method to it, which... I don't know, I get the sense has somewhat disappeared or become less prominent in modern education. And, and having a, a big comeback with uh, especially the Gen Z and the millennial where there seems to be arguing all the time. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, 
that contestation is happening more and more because of new memes and telling people they are oh, that's stupid, the woke, and all of the things that's happening. It's right. a lot of that manifestation of a contestation culture that's coming up. It's very interesting. Can you um, yeah. So I'm curious as to whether you have considered the blockchain for some of these data sovereignty and ga- data governance issues, because I, I know that you develop private data servers. It's something you've thought about, it, and it seems kind of like an obvious use case for blockchain technology. And I, I wonder, did you reject it because you didn't think it would function appropriately for this? Or was it a matter of timing? Because you may have preceded it by a couple of years. So in, in personal data service, we work with quite a number of blockchain companies. Okay. And they all come to us for one reason only. Finally, that's the place to store <laughs> that belongs with, to the user instead of looking for a federated wallet or some centralized. Because the problem with a lot of distributed ledgers and blockchains is that there are chains Seriously, a chain can't hold a lot of data. You need, and where the chain starts from and where the chain ends, man, means a lot. Means a lot. So you can start a chain, and you can then, you know, have a distributed ledger and the blockchain between entities. But the individual is rarely, rarely represented in the legal form of way to contract on the data and license that data themselves. So now you've got great distributed ledger and blockchain, but no representation of the biggest block of users in the world, the individual, they still need some federated representation of some sort. So we do this because we know we help with the contracts and the storage, whereas the chain really do something fundamentally very, very valuable, which is the validation and the verification of certain events of data. But then once you have it and have that validation, where are you going to put it? So interesting. Um, now, going down the economic path here, um, do you think banks will still be around 20 years from now? <laughs> Classic future <of> podcast, <laughs> curveball. <laughs> banks, 20 years, go. <laughs> we must never doubt the resilience of markets. You know, right. when I... I ran a travel company back in 1990s and the internet came along. They're going like, oh, travel companies are going to be the end. Well, they're still around, <laughs> but they're right. around more than ever. Right. Um, I think banks will evolve. Um, in fact, they, they are already evolving, mostly because the nature of what is being exchanged is now starting to change. The so-called fiat currency is just one kind of currencies. And then you have crypto. Now with personal data servers and data passes, you're going to have many more asset classes sitting on top of what can or cannot be exchanged. I think we lived in a world where the only thing that was problem uh, that, that was great to exchange was money. But money had a problem. If I told you I was going to give you $200, you think meh is $200. But if I gave you and your partner a wonderful dinner for two overlooking the River Thames, which is about $200 worth, the value you get is far more. So obviously, the the reduction of things of value into something that's what we call currency actually debases the value of what we enjoy. Now, given that to be the lowest economic form, it was great when society was trying to move from barter to something that could trade. But as we move into digitalization, we have NFTs, we have a, a slice of a, a racehorse or a bit of a house, you know, and you, you will start to see exact class emerging and, and the way to be able to exchange different kinds of value will start to change. Now, banks, the more progressive ones, will recognize that what they are essentially is a trusted organization that held certain asset or value to enable these exchanges to happen. They still like to go towards currency type, sure. But at some point, they will move to other asset class. So I actually think banks have a very bright future. Unfortunately, uh, they do have to evolve. So how long before you think we'll be able to deposit Bitcoin into our bank account? Uh, The thing about technology is that we always like to use an old technology to benchmark against a new one. Um, What was it that um, that we always remember? The first television video, the first thing to air on television were two people who was from radio sitting down there talking to an audience. So uh, what was 
the first website that came on to the internet. It was a brochure because that's how we transferred information. So every new technology benchmarks against the old one as a way to scaffold into a new world. Yeah. And I think the idea that we would use and deposit Bitcoin into a bank account is the similar idea that we will use the internet for brochures. Yeah. The future is going to be way more than crypto. I think crypto is the start of um, an asset class and digitalization. Um, but you will start to see far, far more asset class coming up above that. So maybe the right question to say, well, at which point would I deposit my graduate certificate <laughs> into a bank okay. or, or some funny asset that, that I might have? Yeah. It and today we collateralize our house against the money. In the future, we might use the house and a bit of it as the as the money and and instead of the the money that collateralizes it so you know they're all fungible it's interesting right before we started recording thomas and i were actually discussing that where when a new technology comes along the first thing you do is try to reason about it using the metaphors that you're already familiar with and and we use that exact example the, the first websites were the yellow pages but on the internet now and uh chris dixon he's a uh, uh, one of the crypto partners at Andreessen Horowitz, I think. And I was reading a Twitter thread that he put together the other day about how NFTs and some of these other crypto assets are entirely new sorts of digital primitives. And so what people are thinking of them, uh, the, the way people are thinking about them now is essentially just digital trading cards, because that's sort of the obvious metaphor. It lets you kind of grasp the next iteration of the technology, but that in the future, people will do things which are as different from trading cards as Wikipedia is from a static webpage. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, talking about that, I was given, uh, I lived in uh, Malaysia in 1996. I was given the yellow pages of the World Wide Web. It was about <laughs> this, and it, had, and it said it has all the websites in it. I should have kept it. Yeah, that would be valuable now. It's so, yeah. so valuable. But yeah. Yeah. But that's like your yellow pages. But you're right. It, it does have to make you think quite differently about what the, the future might look like. And it's not linear. And so, um, although I have to say, they are, from a market design point of view, you can quite actually uh, see how the markets might stratify. Because if you understand human values and human behaviors that came from all the way from caveman days, our needs haven't changed that much. Right. Um, it's just that if you took a human-centered approach, you would see a market in a very different way. And you could almost see it morphing into a different thing. So, you know, I used to say it's the horizontal. It's always the wet wiring. You know, when you put a piece of sensor in a WC in a toilet, you make him into a health company because he now can analyze urine, not manufacture WCs. Right. And so that's the kind of future we have to start understanding because fundamentally if you take a human-centric view you would see a very different set of markets than you see right now so so what do you see as some of the big opportunities that are out there that are just we're just starting to get a glimmer of them uh coming into the over the horizon and uh that somebody's going to capitalize on in a big way in the near future well, I like to say the personal data server. <laughs> <laughs> data Swift, this hot new company you should yes, look into. Yeah. Data Swift is hot. Um, I think uh, where you see some really, really interesting things happen are people who, uh, organizations that really understand a human psyche um, to then start from what a human person wants. What some uh, A technologist once said to me, so at the moment you create an app, everything is about the app. It's not about you anymore. So the world is still in a hub and smoke where the hub is the app and you are the spoke. And what he said he loved about the personal data service is that the way we built up data passes and data passport, we always say we don't build apps. You know, we build a functionality around the human person so that the data can, can come in and out for apps to function better. But when the apps come to see us, they say, but we're the hub and you're the hub. How does that work? 
and you go like, well, in future, every app will have data passporting functionality. You will have a better relationship with the individual because you have a server, he has a server. And I think applications that understand how that relationship with between human beings, other human beings and the services that is not about the service, but it's about human beings interacting and getting services. Those are the ones that will really, really win. Well, fantastic. Dr. Ng, this has been a, a wonderful and stimulating conversation. We thank you so much for your time and walking us through all this. Yeah, I'm going to spend a lot more time thinking about that one foot space around me now. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to challenge people who yeah, try you, to get you, into you have that a space. <laughs> yeah, you have a completely different perspective now with all the business technology that's trying to get at you, exactly, right? Exactly, yeah. um, right. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, this is wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.